0: My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the March edition of the journal. I'd like to start with a paper on female genital mutilation. This is a hugely important topic of real relevance in the 21st century. 125 million women and girls worldwide have had female genital mutilation. There is no robust UK data, although it's estimated that over 137,000 adult women and a further 70,000 girls under the age of 15 have either had or are at risk of female genital mutilation. Female genital mutilation has been illegal in the UK since 1985 and in 2013 it became illegal to take a child abroad for female genital mutilation. Mandatory reporting for regulated health and social care professionals and teachers came into effect in England and Wales this year. In this issue, Hodes and colleagues report their experience of children referred with suspected female genital mutilation to a UK safeguarding clinic. That's 47 children, referred between 2006 and 2014. 27 had confirmed female genital mutilation. Type 1, the most severe, in 2. Type 2, in 8. And type 4, which is pricking and nicking, in 11. The circumstances of the female genital mutilation were known in 17. 12 being performed by her health professional or in a medical setting. Eight out of 27 had one or more medical symptoms, including pain, bleeding, tenderness, dysuria, nocturnal enuresis and adhesions. 17 had the female genital mutilation performed outside the country, either before they moved here, 14, or being taken out before 2003 when it became illegal. In 10 cases, this was less clear, and although police and social services were involved, there were no successful prosecutions. This data set represents an important snapshot of female genital mutilation in the UK. There is now a British paediatric surveillance study in process. In an accompanying review, Sarah Creighton and Deborah Hurds discuss female genital mutilation, what every paediatrician needs to know, And in an accompanying um, leading article, Jeff DeBell reflects on the two papers, female genital mutilation, making the case for good practice. The second paper I'd like to highlight this month relates to celiac screening in type 1 diabetes. Children with type 1 diabetes are at increased risk of celiac disease. Recent guidance suggests that screening should include HLA typing for common genotypes, and that those negative for these alleles require no further screening. This is based on the fact that less than 1% of patients with celiac disease are HLA negative, although 30% of the general population will have one or more of the celiac-associated haplotypes, possibly higher in type 1 diabetes. This has resulted in the role of HLA typing in screening children with diabetes for celiac disease being questioned particularly as in a Dutch cohort, 86% of diabetic patients were HLA positive. In this issue, Mitchell and colleagues report their experience across two large cohorts of children with type 1 diabetes in Scotland. That's 176 children. DQ2 or DQA alleles were identified in 94%. All patients with celiac disease, that's 11 out of the 176, were HLA positive for DQ2 or DQ8. All were diagnosed within five years of the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. This is an important paper. The authors rightly conclude that if most children with diabetes are HLA positive, then it's not particularly helpful or cost-effective as part of the screen for celiac disease to do the test, although clearly a negative test does suggest a low or minimal risk. The third paper I'd like to cover this month relates to the legal basis for compulsorily detaining children and young people for treatment. This is a complicated area, and clinicians can usually cite cases from their own experience where there has been significant difficulty. In this issue, Robert Wheeler and Anthony Crabb discuss the specific issues for three different age groups. Adults, young people aged 16 to 17, and children aged 15 and below. They also discuss the position for children, where parental consent is a part of the consideration. The article is helpful and up-to-date, and cites specific case law. In essence, the important issues to understand are when and for what the Mental Health Act can be used, the role of the Mental Capacity Act, the role of the Children Act, the role of decision-making by young people, and the rights and responsibilities of parents who are major stakeholders in decision-making in young people aged less than 18 years of age. In difficult situations, advice and input from the multidisciplinary team, including legal and social care, is essential. It's essential in order to achieve the best outcome for the young person, their family and the professionals involved. The fourth article, actually a set of two articles which I'd like to cover, relate to the management of speech and language disorders. These are common problems and the identification of development problems in a child's acquisition of speech, language or communication is a core activity in child surveillance. 15% of toddlers are late talkers and 7% of children enter school with persistent impairments of their language development. Early assessment and management, including the assessment of hearing, is a key priority in order to prevent the potential negative secondary impact. In this issue, there are two excellent reviews by Anne O'Hara and Lynn Bremner, who explore key issues including normal language development, specific language problems, assessment, investigation and management, including discussion of acquired disorders. It's important to establish whether disorders are primary or secondary, for example, cerebral palsy, learning difficulties, syndrome. It's important to consider both speech and receptive language. It's important to consider regression of communication as a feature of autism and the early features are discussed. Further investigation should be informed by clinical assessment and can improve prognosis. Treatment should be evidence-based and there's a review in this of the different treatment options available. The second paper deals with the acquired conditions including traumatic, neurodegenerative, tumour and seizure related. Both papers are essential reading for clinicians who see many children of whom may have issues with speech and language would potentially benefit from specialist input. The final article I'd like to cover this month relates to families' priorities in life-limiting illness. Improving quality of life is the central focus of palliative care support for children with life-limiting illnesses, although achieving it can be challenging and monitoring the achievement is even more difficult. In this issue, Harris and colleagues report their experience with My Quality. 32 families of children with life-limiting conditions in three different hospices. MyQuality is a generic online tool that enables families to choose and monitor parameters they identify as having an impact on their quality of life and thereby aims to improve patient professional communication and enhance patient empowerment within healthcare dialogues. 23 out of Two families chose to use the website, most choosing to monitor two to three parameters, most commonly seizures, constipation, pain, and sleep problems. Family empowerment scores increased during the three-month studies. Interview feedback confirmed the acceptability and ease of use of the website and the value of a graphic record of change over time to support ongoing management and collaborative review of medical, nursing and social interventions. The process of generating priorities and monitoring change over time is empowering for patients and their families and informative for staff. The tool has the potential to improve the quality of life and care of children with life-limiting and other chronic conditions. More research is needed. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for detail regarding the specific papers. Thanks for listening.